0: That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. Available on Amazon and everywhere. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Perez, and I am joined by a special guest. He's the president of MIF. He's also a disabilities and cannabis advocate and uh, peer counselor and power wheelchair guru. Please give it up for Mr. Thomas Queter.
1: I forgot I had that in my bio, Guru. <laughs> I, I
0: like I like the the Guru. You know, and I, do, do you have, do you happen to have a ponytail?
1: I uh, no, no, no ponytail, no yoga. I don't bend well.
0: <laughs> there you, there you go. And, and Thomas, I think I first came across you um, a while back. You had this meme where you said, uh, "I run better than the government." Um, and so maybe, maybe, maybe you could explain why, uh, uh, why that's such a great meme to the, uh, to the audience. Those who might not be familiar with it.
1: Okay. So that's, that slogan's actually not original to me.
0: Okay. Um,
1: somebody had a brilliant and very libertarian idea <clears throat> based, I assume on their understanding of welfare. Um, they marketed a shirt to people in wheelchairs that said, I run better than government and it's still out there. It's still being sold. Um, And I saw that, and as a libertarian, I, of course, had to uh, say that and post a picture of myself. And I do qualify the statement for myself. Um, I run better than the government because, unlike most government programs, I can manage a step and a dive. And that's at least one step better.
0: There we go. And um, how? So you're in uh, you're in New York, uh, you're uh, upstate. Is that how you would describe it? Or um,
1: I would describe it as central. New York is weird. If you're um, below I ninety, everybody above I ninety calls you a downstater, and if you're above Westchester, everybody below Westchester calls you an upstater, and the Western New York people are really angry because they're not upstate. Or downstate and they want to be called western new york and and it's kind of strange the dynamic there we're all trying to separate each other
0: yeah i'm from uh i'm from queens originally so i'm i'm from queens i uh went to nyu and lived in brooklyn for a while so i'm you know i'm i'm the city folk and what what's the relationship like you know like what? how do you guys view us southerners (laughs)
1: Well, first of all, don't ever lump me into any kind of you guys kind of statement. Uh-huh. How, I don't how th- go with the crowd, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I can I can speak to the general sentiment, right? Yeah, and yeah, I can speak to my own perspective. I actually spent a few weeks in Queens last year, Um and I have a funny story about that. When yeah, yeah, I hope
0: you. I hope hope it was by choice. I hope you weren't uh, forced to be somewhere you didn't want to be.
1: We were petitioning for statewide office, and I was on the ballot. So, or I was on the um. yeah, you know, the sheet of five statewide candidates. What do they call that? Why is that slipping? Uh, <laughs> it's because I'm live. Yeah, so I was down there for petitioning, but back to the upstate downstate thing. Um, I feel that it's it's mired in misnomers or, or misunderstandings. A lot of upstaters blame New York City and the people from there for all of our problems because it's Taxes and the way the government works. And and I understand why. Because, well, politically, New York City and Albany seem to have all the power in the state for the most part. And that's where that comes from. But the people downstate, they're not really – they shouldn't be wrapped up in that. One thing I do know about the differences between down there and up here is that we elect – a lot of our local positions like school board and in the city, they're, they're mostly appointed. A lot of yeah. the, the lower level people that we elect up here, you guys don't in the city don't have a choice. Right. And it's, it's no wonder that um, freedoms are less there when you're not voting on representatives. It makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. It's like the people, uh, you know. The people that you guys elect obviously have; they have to answer to you. Meanwhile, it's sort of like you know who's going to get the uh, the next appointment, you know, down in uh, in New York. Um, and yeah, so I, I I I'm from Queens originally, so I'm a you know I was a lifelong New Yorker until a couple of years ago, where I made the move to Jersey. And uh, where we are today, uh, I might as well be in New York because this Canadian wildfire is just. Uh, blanketing the the sky, darkening the sky and just messing everything up. Right now, um I didn't realize it, but uh earlier today when I was walking around like my my eyes were all teary and now I'm all like congested. So um I hope I can make it through uh through this. Mia, you, know, you were smoking you were smoking a cigarette before so I think you're doing fine.
1: I'm 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 one of those people, right? I still smoke. I've tried to quit but nothing works.
0: No, no nothing works? <laughs>
1: Um, Chantex gave me terrible nightmares and, and slight psychological disturbance. So I got off of that real quick. Um, oh, wow. and cold Turkey doesn't work because well, I'm addicted to nicotine and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's actually a genetic variance in the human population that, uh, something like 40% of us, it's almost impossible to quit a nicotine addiction once you start.
0: So what, uh, did you try the patch? Try
1: um, so I actually I tried the gum. Um, I'm not real big on patches because you get one manufacturing um, issue and they don't really release. We saw this in fentanyl, right? They over-release sometimes. Oh, wow. And it's just not something I trust, personally. Everybody's welcome to make their own choices. But I did try the nicotine gum. And I don't know if you know this, Lou, but nicotine is heavily addictive.
0: <laughs> yes, how much gum were you <laughs> until right. we were chewing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was chewing too much gum. Um, <clears throat> I tried the uh, vaporless nicotine inhalers.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I, I forget what they call them. Um, ah, nicotrol the boxes right over there. Um, that helps, but I still haven't really been able to get away from it. And any nicotine replacement just doesn't feel like tobacco, if that uh-huh. makes any sense. So often people like myself end up smoking on top of their nicotine replacement.
0: Is it sort of like um, how people want to make um, fake meat, like lab-grown meat, and it's just not taking off? Like people are like, no, like I need that feel of, of the meat. I need like the textures and, and yeah. all that.
1: Yeah, um, Maybe. I'm really not a fan of lab-grown meat as a concept.
0: I've never tried I, it. Yeah, I've never tried it. I,
1: well, I, I, I haven't tried it, but I understand nature, and I understand that our um, our science is not there <laughs> to make it as nutritionally viable as nature does.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You talk about the um, uh, the like the genetic component to smoking because um, both of my parents smoked. And uh, I think my mom's probably, she probably quit like probably over 10 years ago, maybe maybe a little more. And my dad quit before she did. But growing up, um, I remember uh, I have two younger brothers. They had to be like maybe like four or five years old. And I'm like a year older. And my mom left a cigarette in an ashtray and my younger brother, Mark, Hopped up onto the counter, picked it up, and puffed on it like uh yeah you know like, like the the footage you see of like of chimpanzees smoking he was like a little monkey smoking, and he went on um, to become a very successful smoker um I, he's been, he's been off for, uh, for a little bit, but uh it's like, oh well there he was, he's little you know this little kid smoking cigarettes like it was uh, like it was nothing.
1: Well, and you know, smoking is an interesting addiction because it, uh, it kills some people, but not all. Um, I can't tell you how many little old farmers I've known who worked every day of their life into their nineties to the day they die, smoked like a chimney and had beer every day. Um, personally, I, I can't drink. I, I quit many years ago and, um, alcohol is not the drug for me. Um, but uh, it, it is interesting because you see some people, they'll develop issues right away. Some people later in life, some people not at all.
0: Yeah, it is wild when you see like, uh, you know, these old timers and you're like, there's just, they're just built differently. Um, my my family has a, has a butcher shop. It's funny, we're talking about lab grown meat. Um, and my, you know, my dad would have a number of customers who are like, you know, Puerto Ricans in their nineties and they would come in and they come in and they get, they get bacon and, you know, a pack of cigarettes from, you know, the bodega down the street. And that's basically what they're eating. And they're, you know, and they're all there. They're fine. They're still walking around and all that. Uh, It is wild how that works.
1: Interestingly, bacon fat is one of the healthiest fats you can cook with. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, Low in cholesterol and no, um, what is it? No trans fats, obviously.
0: Well, look at that. This just turned into the uh the health spot for everybody out there. If you're looking to offset your smoking, get some bacon fat in there.
1: Absolutely. Actually, um <laughs> <clears throat> I did take some steps to change my smoking habit. I used to smoke four packs of marbreads a day.
0: Four packs. Yeah. How many how many cigarettes is that if you count 80. Out? 80? Eighty?
1: Eighty. Dude. So there's an interesting episode of how it's made. Are you familiar with the
0: show? Um, no, no. I uh, Explain. Okay.
1: It. So no. it's an old, um, they're still going, but it's an old show. And they basically take you into a factory and they show you how stuff is made. Uh, sometimes they're making um, skateboards. Sometimes they're making widgets, right? Whatever it is. And they just show you the process behind the scenes of, of how things are manufactured and made. <laughs> and one of their earlier episodes probably late 80s, early 90s, they went into a tobacco factory. And they showed you that they take all of the expired cigarettes, all of the um, waste material from the tobacco plant when they're making cigarettes, literally shoveling it off the floor, um, and they soak it in solvents. That's to extract the nicotine. And then they spray that onto the tobacco to make fresh cigarettes. And that's because they're trying to get that nicotine, nicotine level to that sweet spot between heavy addiction and poison. A lot of people forget nicotine used to be a, a black widow drug. You can extract it and slip it into someone's food and they die.
0: Wait, wait how, yeah, how much? I, I never I never knew about that. Um, so th- there were like cases of, of people being murdered with nicotine?
1: Oh yeah, in the 1700s, 1800s, absolutely. You, you can do the same thing with apple seeds to extract um, arsenic.
0: Now, uh, the, this show just went from you know health info to if you want to commit, uh, if you want to commit murder and possibly get away with it. I don't, I don't know.
1: So back to how I curbed my smoking.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's um,
1: So in New York, you know, you're probably aware of the price of cigarettes uh, through the '90s and and on just went up and up and up. Yeah. Um, And so I started rolling my own cigarettes, buying a can of tobacco and the tubes and all of that. Um, Now I just hand roll, and I actually use organic tobacco with no additives, which means the solvents full of extra nicotine aren't in there. Now, the tobacco industry actually spent billions of dollars to figure out how much they could max that nicotine out before they were killing their customers.
0: So, so would it be? Uh, so, is there a where customers were, say, dying from nicotine poisoning before they were getting like lung cancer?
1: Um, no, they never, to my knowledge, had uh, people die of nicotine poisoning from smoking cigarettes. But what they were looking for. Is the heaviest addiction possible before killing you, so that you're smoking the most cigarettes, which turns over their product more quickly?
0: Wow. So okay. So now you're doing your your hand rolling organic cigarettes, which kind of makes you, I guess, like a hipster uh, in a in a way, or a hillbilly. Uh, oh, hillb- hillbilly hipster. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I wanna. Uh, uh, see-
1: it's interesting. I, I smoke less than a pack worth of tobacco a day now. Um, it's organic. My lungs cleared up when I made the switch because there's there's some two hundred and thirty plus chemicals that they add to those packed cigarettes when you buy them. FDA approved, by the way.
0: Yeah. So yeah, and how do you feel overall? Like, what do you remember what what it was like when you like? How did you feel when you were smoking eighty a day versus? Well, what, what are you up, what are you what are you down to now um, for your own pre-rolled? Um, you
1: it probably amounts to about a half a pack of cigarettes worth of tobacco, but maybe 30 total cigarettes because I roll them much thinner. Uh, no filters, by the way, so no microplastics. I am not inhaling cancer-causing microplastics with my cigarettes anymore.
0: Wow. This is so. This is so much because I've never, I, I've never heard this side before. I'm, I grew up very much in the, you know, all smoke, like being very much against smoking. All smoking is bad. I used to sabotage my mother's smoking. I used to uh, take her cigarette uh, boxes of cigarettes, uh, packs of cigarettes, excuse me, out of her purse, run them under the faucet, and then put them back. And she used to get so pissed. Um, as, you know, you know, as, as, you know, <laughs> you'd expect, but I'm like, but I love you. I, I want you to live. Um, But, you know, yeah, I, I, I wonder, has, have there been any, you know, big like, you know, studies or meta studies on people who smoke, like say, you know, the stuff that you're smoking versus the uh you know, the, the corporate, corporate cigarettes.
1: I would say it's very unlikely that any successful studies that have been, um, shown to everyone exist um because they're gonna do everything they can to not show that they want that money they want that turnover of product um you know <clears throat> your your local heroin dealer is much the same
0: they mm-hmm. want
1: you to keep coming back
0: yeah yeah um and uh, so you know i wonder how how does this uh because you're you're also a you know a disabilities and cannabis advocate and Cannabis, I guess nowadays is sort of notorious for being so much stronger than than it used to be. You know, say you know thirty, forty, forty years ago. Um, uh, is there a similar thing happening with cannabis that happened with with cigarettes? Although I, I, I don't know, I,
1: I would just say we're doing a better job of growing it because it's not illegal.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um, so as a cannabis advocate. Um, I would advise that you, if you're a first time user, start with CBD. Just go there, get a get a CBD gummy or tincture or something, and, and start there, um, and then work your way up on the scale of THC if you're going to go that way. Um, and I, I, when I was a teenager, and this is going to sound bad at first, so hear me out. <laughs> there was this there was this thing that people did called banging. Um, not what it sounds like. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to bang somebody is to give them the most potent cannabis you can find for their first time smoking cannabis.
0: Oh, man. <laughs>
1: and you'll hear bad stories about that, right? And it turns people off cannabis because they're not used to it. It's just like any other medicine. You get used to it. You build right. up a tolerance just like opiates when you're prescribed, um, which interestingly is why I became a cannabis user. Um, I think I was 11. So 1994, when my orthopedic surgeon pulled me aside and everybody else was out of the room, and he said, you know, these painkillers, they're no good for you. You should go try some marijuana, right? So think about this. My doctor was telling a severely disabled child to go score some street drugs. <clears throat>
0: <laughs> Do, was it was it uh, was his name Doctor Feelgood? Was that uh, uh,
1: Doctor Carpenter? Actually, I did end up leaving him over a different incident, but um, he served me mostly well throughout my childhood.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what, uh, what what were you diagnosed with as a as a child? Where you were you seeing this guy?
1: Okay, so um, when we were talking before the show in um, text, you said you wanted to know how I came to libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, For libertarianism, I was born to it. Uh, My parents were not libertarians, but we were libertarians, right? Um, And so we have to go back before I was born to really explain this.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go back there. Sure.
1: After my brother was born, my mother had an IUD infection and was told she couldn't have children anymore. And they were poor hardworking farm hands, skin and bone, underfed people, right? <clears throat> and she goes to the doctor because she thinks she has the flu. The doctor tells her she's four months pregnant. She refuses to believe him <laughs> from what I'm told. And um, then I would end up being born six weeks late.
0: Six weeks late.
1: As, as someone with a form of dwarfism, as a baby, I was a bigger baby than my brother, who is now six foot three. <laughs>
0: huh.
1: um, and I was born a breach. Wow. So she went into labor because she sneezed and fell, and the skin on her stomach split open. <sighs> oh. I know this because she spent my childhood reminding me what she went through.
0: <laughs> oh, my um, God.
1: I, right? So I'm born. And my condition is one that is rarely diagnosed immediately. I was lucky um, in this hole-in-the-wall hospital in the middle of upstate New York where you can barely find, you know, good health care. At that time, 1983, somebody who was there, I believe he was a nurse, uh, did his residency at the OI clinic, at believe at NYU, and... He was able to diagnose me. Now, here's the thing. In 1983, and it's different now because I've changed the definitions, but in 1983, there were four main types of osteogenesis imperfection. One, two, three, and four. Um, Type one and four basically were the milder forms for the most part. Uh, It was largely diagnosed on physical characteristics. Um, Type three at that time was Supposedly the worst type you could live with and type 2 is defined by miscarriage or infant mortality Right not gonna live. Uh, I was diagnosed as a type 2 They were going to just leave me to die because I had that type 2 diagnosis my mother Who just went through a natural birth breach? Right from a large baby that came out and here's another reason why I'm a libertarian but first right I was born mooning the world Um, she had the sense and the wherewithal through all of the drugs that they gave her through birth like that to fight for my life and have me move to a better hospital, uh, Wilson general hospital down in Binghamton. And they weren't going to let her go with me, but at that time there was less restrictions they could put on you. So they told her, if you can stand up and walk out of here to the vehicle And go, we'll let you go. So now this woman had been split, right, in so many ways. And gone through ten and a half months of gestation. And was full of God knows what drugs. And she stood up out of that bed, walked out of the hospital, and stepped up into my grandfather's rather high pickup to go with me. Um, On two occasions through the first year or two of my birth, she would have to defend my life against CPS, Child Protective Services. And later, as a disabilities advocate, I would come to understand why. Um, The diagnosis doesn't always make its way to the CPS um, officer or representative, like the social worker. And you bring your Infant in with broken bones, which is the number one symptom of my condition. And the first thing the hospital does is call CPS. Mm. Right? Because here's an infant with his arms and legs broken. I mean, it's very natural to think that there must have been some kind of abuse. Um, But what typically happens in those situations is, um, diagnosed or not, CPS takes the child. Again, I'm talking about the 80s more than today, but it still happens. And maybe that child gets diagnosed soon after the CPS. Maybe he was diagnosed before. But in either case, I have talked to many, many parents of kids with my condition who waited 18 years to meet their child.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Because CPS took them. And that's if they're lucky enough that the child survived that system because that's a system full of people who often are overworked and overwhelmed and don't have time to read your medical charts. Right? I mean, I had a nurse break my legs as a baby once because she didn't read the chart before she changed my diaper.
0: Huh.
1: I, I had over 1,000 fractures by the time I was 16. Um, my fracture rate was over 100 a year. <clears throat> and, and here here's a, <clears throat> here's a tip for anybody out there. If you have a small disabled child and you give him cannabis, within two years, he will defy a wing of the federal government to save his own life, as I did. Um, I started using cannabis at the age of 13, and at the age of 15, I was given the internet. And I found about this wonderful family of drugs known as bisphosphonates. Um, they're used to treat low bone density situations. They've been used for Paget's and uh, cancer patients and osteoporosis since the 70s. Uh, but in 1998, <clears throat> it was not allowed by the FDA for a genetic condition whose primary symptom was low bone density. Think about that for a minute. And we yeah. didn't have the option to just get that. You know, I couldn't talk to my doctor, and my doctor saying, well, we should try this. We can't now because of the right to try, but in 1998, that wasn't a thing. So... How did I defy the FDA that tells us that avocados will kill you, coconut oil will kill you, but that Pop-Tart every morning, that's a healthy breakfast. Um, I actually, believe it or not, I had to go through Canada. I On my own, my parents were working far too hard to really do the legwork here. I researched. I found a doctor. Um, I found the study. And I started receiving that treatment when I was 16. <laughs> when I started receiving the treatment, they told me it could take a year or two to see improvement. Two weeks after my first treatment was the first time in my life that I just sat straight up in bed without propping with my arms. Wow. I went from a fracture rate of over a hundred down to a fracture rate of less than one per year. And the federal government was saying I couldn't have that at one time. Hmm. But, um, There were enough of us like me doing that, and the study had great results. And now if you have osteogenesis imperfecta, you can get this drug, or one of many drugs in this family. Um, I get pomidronate, which is kind of one of the stronger forms of uh, bisphosphonate. I get one of the higher doses. Uh, Despite being a, quote, little person, which is a PC term I can't stand. um, Mm. Well, I I weigh 250 pounds, Lou. My shoulders are two feet wide. They're wider than Kane.
0: Two fifty? You weigh two fifty?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my chest is fifty-two inches around.
0: Holy sh! I'm I'm forty. Uh, what am I? Forty-two. So you okay. got you got ten inches. Uh. uh oh, and I'm man. under four foot tall. Wow.
1: So part of that's family genetics. There's a lot of large people in my family.
0: Yeah, you said your brother's what six three? That's a, that's yep. a big. That's a big farm boy. You got <laughs> right. Well,
1: he's a he's a contractor. He has his own contracting business now. Um, doing well. Three daughters. So I am. How do I put this? The best way to define my personality, Lou. I was four and a half years old when I got my first power wheelchair. I've never been able to stand up or take a step, but I was three and a half years old the first time I ran away from home. (laughs) I I made it three yards in rural New York away. You know, it's like, um, let's see, three yards in this town is probably somewhere between 300 and 500 yards of measurement, right? Yeah. Um, As a, you know, 15 to 20 pound kid scooting on his butt. And I I remember why I did that. I wasn't running away from something that was bothering me. I wasn't emotionally disturbed. I wasn't um, upset about anything. Um, I often played in the dirt driveway that we have. Mm -hmm. And at the edge of the driveway to the next private uh, property, there's a steep slope, maybe two feet tall, but almost vertical right and i was told not to go down that slope it was dangerous they said tom you can't do that that's a mistake lou don't tell me i can't do something uh because i sat there for days playing thinking i bet i could do that pretty sure i could figure out a way to get down that pretty safely and i did and then it's like well i can really try hard to get back up that slope or I can keep going. And as libertarians, we believe in the right to you know move around.
0: <laughs>
1: so I kept going. Um,
0: you know, you know, Thomas, like you know he- hearing the story from one, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've written a screenplay yet or a memoir, but it it I, you need to do that. um i think I think the the story you have is is uh, is incredible. And also, I'm just thinking about that little kid having gone through just, I mean, like you said, like hundreds of broken bones and fractures and all that. I mean, my God, what the, I, I, uh, the amount of people who would just quit naturally just because, you know, their body wouldn't be able to sustain it, you know, or, 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 you know, or the fear there. And yet you push, you know, you push through that. I think that's, that's amazing, man.
1: Well, if you want to live, you have to shed your peer. I don't care who you are. If you want to survive, thrive, move forward, exist, continue on, whatever it is you're looking to do in life, um, you need tenacity. You need to go after it. You need to be unafraid and unapologetic. Um, I grew up learning how to fight insurance companies, learning how to fight local and state school systems. Um And, of course, the FDA. Every time I turn around, um, some purportedly benevolent government program or concept is trying to detriment me. Uh, Restrictions on welfare, right? I mean, we talk about Disability welfare, I'm on disability welfare right now. I have a goal of being off of it by 2025. I don't want to die on this shit. (laughs) Sorry for swearing, but uh, I, I, I turned 18 in June of 2001. And that July SSI check was the first welfare check that was mine to manage. And I remember going to the post office, getting the mail, looking at that check and thinking, I know all of the restrictions to my life that come with this. I know that this means I will never be successful. This means I could end up in a state institution. I could end up in a place that's terrible and full of abuse. I could end up in all, all manners of, of tragedy that I probably don't want to disturb your viewers with. Um, and I, I thought to myself, yeah, I, I got to find a way. I got to find a way to get off of this. That was my own prerogative because I understood the restrictions. That's why I went to college. Um, The other reason I went to college is that the state lied to me. Um, They told me that uh, I would be be covered under funding because of my disability. That didn't turn out to be true. After my first year, I came out of uh, an architectural major, uh, nine grand in debt. And as an extremely poor person, (laughs) a nine grand in 2001 or 2002 was a big deal. It took me many years to get out from under that. Um, I was also told I was going to a state school, Alfred State. Um, at that time, it had one of the best architecture programs in the country. Um, it, it had a, a reputation for that as well. And I was told that they would make curriculum adjustments for my disability. I don't know how much you know about uh, architecture or or going through school. But uh, at that time, despite the emergence of uh, AutoCAD, which is what got me into college, um, you still had to go through two years of manual drafting, right? Mm. And some of the sizes of the projects are bigger than me. (laughs) <laughs> and and you know, standing up, bending over, and reaching—not not not really in my wheelhouse of uh, of uh, talents. <laughs> and, and so, the curriculum classes I started failing. The ones I liked, the ones that I was interested in, because I couldn't do the projects. And you know, you, you can only go to an office and ask for help so many times before. Yeah. Um. It was very obvious that I wasn't, get what I, I wasn't going to get what I needed, but they did the smile and nod and promise to get you there and get that money. And um, I actually came out of one year of college as a severe alcoholic. Jesus. Well, they, they, they made another bright decision, right? This guy, he's disabled. He needs to be with responsible people. We'll put him in the 24-years-old and up wing of the dorm you know who populates that wing of the dorm in state colleges?
0: It sounds like uh, Canadian hockey players. Ex military. Uh, oh, ex military. Okay, I was I was off by.
1: Uh, Do by not Harris. learn to drink straight whiskey with the military. That's a bad idea. <laughs> um, but th- they were great guys. We had a lot of fun. Um, but I was in a in a way, I was four and a half hours away from home. Constantly under what seemed like a threat to me of being put out on the street, right? They told me, you know, you have to leave if you're not here. They didn't really say it in a explanatory nice way for an 18-year-old who's on his own for the first time and is really disabled. My thoughts every time I got a phone call from the financial aid office was I'm going to be four and a half hours away from home on the street in a Western New York winter. And my parents can't just drop everything and come get me. Mm. They didn't have that ability in life. They worked, uh, so I, I signed off on those personal loans for 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 my uh, education every time they asked. And man, I ended up deep. I ended up depressed. I ended up an alcoholic. I ended up coming home and and quitting alcohol for the first time. I've been quit many times in the next fifteen or so years. Um, have you ever quit drinking? A liter plus of straight liquor a day, cold
0: turkey. I I I never uh, never drank that much. Uh, I did straight liquor. Uh, By the time
1: I, I got out of that first year of college, I was drinking a liter of absolute a day to keep my hands steady.
0: What what if what impact did that have on on your condition? Like, did that have any effect on like your bone density? I, I, is that
1: I you know that's that's to be seen. you known. known. Um, mm. I was still getting those treatments and my bone density was still climbing. Um, and I, I mean, it can't be good for you. It's alcohol. It's the only inebriate, no demand that's toxic to every cell of your body.
0: Mm.
1: Um, so I can't say it didn't detriment my condition, but I can't say it was noticeably so. Um, but um, quitting liquor at a habit like that on your own, is probably not something anyone should do. Here's the thing. Uh, My condition is very severe, and the severity of my condition makes my situation much more rare than even when people have an understanding of osteogenesis imperfecta. Um, I am at the farthest end of that spectrum, which it is a spectrum. Some people have osteogenesis imperfecta and never know it. Mm. It's a genetic, it's one of many genetic mutations that affect collagen type 1, which affects the structure of your bones, skin, and organs. So um, I can't say it affected my health in a noticeable noticeable way as far as my bones, um, but uh, it definitely affected my mental health a lot. Oh, and,
0: yeah.
1: And quitting cold turkey without assistance was rough got you, know, you got to understand just like the talking about CPS earlier I understood that going into a rehab facility for alcohol was was not a good idea for me. I would w- likely be mishandled, broken, hurt, potentially mm. killed. Mm. So
0: yeah. And and uh so at uh, at the time you had a motorized uh wheelchair since did I was four ever, and a half. Did you ever get pulled over for uh Drinking, yes. uh, drinking under the influence while twice. while operating that
1: twice. Um, so once was actually in college. Um, interestingly, if you get stopped by the state troopers and you're very disabled, and they're going to search you for contraband or whatever it is they want to do, just slur and tell them you're incontinent. They leave you alone. <laughs> Um, the second time it wasn't really a big deal. Um, pulled over, he, the police officer was actually already sitting on the side of the road parked. Um, and I was coming down the side of the road because the sidewalks here are garbage. Um, and I had been drinking and he turns his high beams on. Right. And so of course I slow down cause I can't see and I'm trying to figure out where I am and make sure I'm safe, not in the road. And and he uses that as an excuse to get out and you know, see if I'm inebriated. Well, yeah, but I told him, you know, you just blinded me with your lights. That's why I, you know, got off the road.
0: Yeah. And, and what did, did you get out of it or uh... Uh,
1: yeah, he didn't give me a ticket. I mean, it's Shenango County, man. You you really gotta be um you gotta be doing something stupid or bad or violent to get a ticket or get arrested. I mean, the trippers always hot on traffic tickets, but that's New York. Um, as far as, well, I, I have seen so many instances where people had illegal backyard fireworks. And when somebody called the cops, the cops come and make sure you're doing it safely, and then they stand back and watch.
0: <coughs> and I, I imagine, like, I mean, you're probably well-known up there right like they know who thomas is
1: well they they definitely know that i'm not going to hold back on my opinions
0: you're not going where i'm sorry what was that again
1: but i'm not going to hold back on my opinions um right. some people love it some people hate it don't know don't care i'm a libertarian um people think i'm uh okay well here's an instance There was a local couple who adopted a child. They were poor. Um, It was through the CPS system. Uh, Now, here's the thing. When when you're a child in the CPS system, you know what kind of choices you have? Oh, God. Uh, Yeah, vanilla or chocolate pudding. Um, That's about it. Now, they placed, the systems placed, a deaf physically disabled cognitively disabled child with a couple who lived in a trailer that had no ramp and they didn't speak sign language and this was at a time when um, they could promise all kinds of uh, assistance for disabilities and it was very attractive we'll help you with this you can do this because we'll provide you with the services you need and and it was actually at the time that that started ramping down that New York has been cutting services for the disabled. Since at least the late '90s and early '00s, uh, so now you have this poor family who adopted because they couldn't have children, and they're not. I don't like to disparage them, but they didn't have college degrees, right? Um, they weren't well, they, fit to handle the situation. Is more appropriate to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you as you describe it, I mean. The, the- you know, at at the very minimum, it's like having a ramp. Like you know, uh, being able to communicate with this child who you know has been through so much. You could, you know, um,
1: yeah. yeah. So they did end up getting a natural baby. She got pregnant, and then the trailer burnt down with him in it. Um,
0: oh my god
1: yeah it's a very disturbing situation Um, how old
0: how old was the child
1: early teens i think Mm. so the truth is not known about this situation at all Um, what i can ascertain is she got pregnant and probably didn't want the burden anymore right because when the state promised all that help and it didn't come through, it became a very dragging thing in life. My own situation is dragged on the lives of those around me. I, I can see it. It's stress, right? I, as a kid, I always felt worse for my parents and those around me because they had to deal with that. They had, to, they had to watch their child suffer in a way that most people can't even imagine. And it's believed that he was overfed his medications. Um, potentially presumed dead and then they burnt the trailer down with him in it um now yes to murder someone like that is bad and yes you are a criminal or however you want to look at it um and no argument for me there they did something wrong they, they have responsibility um but I was advocating for the fact that CPS had responsibility. Mm. State systems had responsibility. They took that child, whether it was given or they took it away or whatever it was, and then they placed that child. And they placed that child very deliberately in a place. Well, they didn't probably deliberately choose a place that was bad for him, but they very deliberately placed him. And here we are, right? Here's the end result. The other thing is CPS has been called several times because of the situation with him. And they didn't do anything. So who were they looking out for, and 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 how how did that help, right? Um, they went from one life in a bad position to now three. Now here's the interesting thing: I grew up with that guy. He's my age. We're in the same grade, and he was one of the few that, whenever there was anything disability disability related, that um, someone might think I needed to be defended for. He was one of the people that did that. He stood up for me and others. Um and so to think that he would just have malicious intent in his heart to me is wrong. I don't I don't think that's it. I think he was in a shit spot and I think he made a bad decision. And while he absolutely and she should too, she got off because she, she was pregnant. Um, while so, they so, absolutely suffer so, consequences, don't you think maybe we should look at these systems too?
0: So, uh, so t- t- just to just to be clear, so uh, the adopted father, the father who were, uh, who adopted the child, you you knew him. I grew up uh, with him. you. grew up You grew up with him, not, I, with, I, the, I, not with the. I talked to
1: his mother every time I see her outside. She looks right up the road. And it's. Um, it's interesting because when I was trying to advocate for the fact that we need to look at these systems and how they function and why this whole situation came to be, um, I got called a murderer defender because as a disability advocate and someone who is disabled, obviously I think it's okay to murder disabled people. <laughs> what? Um and that was a very interesting situation because, I mean, you have to think all of these people are defending CPS and the state. When CPS placed them, the state placed them. Um, they, they, they didn't do their job when they were called about problems. How are we supposed to not look at that? How did people just put on the blinders and say, oh, well, the government did it. It's okay. Um, you know, twice in my early life, my mother had to defend my life against uh, social workers, CPS. Um, at one time, there's a story, she, she threatened to cut their heart out <laughs> yeah. um, because they were going to take me, right? And she knew my situation. She knew my disability. She knew that if a stranger handled me, my bones were going to get broken. Um, when I started this treatment that I told you about a little bit ago, they did a bone density scan, a DEXA scan, right? And my bone density came back at a negative nine. Negative. Uh, was, yeah what
0: what's the what's the range? That's
1: uh, what I'm getting at. The yeah. normal range is negative two to two. My orthopedic surgeon at that time said that it was the lowest bone density he had ever seen in anyone for anything. Um, now I'm in normal range between negative two and two. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. And, you and, know, you know and with that, you know, when you talk about bone density, in my mind, I mean, I don't know how it is with, you know, people who are listening to this, but I, I think just arms and legs, but we're talking about your whole body, you're talking about your whole skeleton, you're talking about your cranium, we're talking about your rib cage, we're talking about, about your whole body. And so it's like, if a, if a bone breaks in a, in a rib, and, and, you know, that has severe impact on your breathing on you know your cardiovascular system all that
1: well i do have large and powerful lungs so that's always helped um i actually made it through a three-day political convention in florida with all of the ribs on my right side broken Sitting up doing the political thing shaking hands jesus well it sounds extreme, right
0: Yeah I mean, yeah yes Thomas uh, you, yeah the way that you the way that you uh, tell that uh, story describe it yeah, it sounds a little extreme.
1: Well it sounds extreme to you right. because you haven't experienced it right Remember I had over a thousand fractures
0: because I'm a pussy because well, I'm, I'm a pussy if I break a nail, I'm gonna be I'm not shaking anybody's hand, Thomas. So
1: um, you're familiar with the frog and boiling water analogy right? Yeah, yeah. If if you drop the frog into boiling water, it hops out. If you put it in and you bring it up to a boil, it it doesn't. Well, I'm the frog that survived being boiled, um, because (laughs) the the way to relate this is that I was born with over 25 fractures. I went on to have fracture after fracture after fracture after fracture. I just healed a broken rib and a broken finger in the last month. I am very, very used, much like a fish is used to swimming, to having broken bones. I'm used to feeling that pain. Uh, pain, when you are overly familiar with it, which let's hope you aren't, um, it is just another sensation if you think about it appropriately. Fortunately, I was taught to meditate from the age of two or three. Um, I can block pain mentally. I can control the way I perceive and react to pain. And to that note, I have actually been in a situation, room full of people, did something that broke my femur. Everybody knows my situation. They hear that noise. They know what it is. And I'm the only guy that's calm because I've dealt with it before.
0: Mm.
1: Right? I mean, when you, when you run into a, a raccoon, you know what a raccoon is. You've seen them before. It doesn't seem that abnormal, does it? But if you're walking around Jersey and you run into a hippopotamus, that's going to be a surprise, right? Uh, to me, the broken bones of the raccoon, not the hippopotamus.
0: Well, well, my we were my family. We were out for a walk uh, a few weeks back, and uh, my wife and my oldest son ran into a, a raccoon in the uh, kind of the storm drain, and uh, raccoon scared the shit out of her. So uh so now my, my son who's three years old, he, he says <laughs> every time we walk by we say we you know, leave the raccoon alone and we'll just uh you know go about it. Um
1: I'm, while we're on the subject of raccoons, I told you I had a funny story about my time in Queens. Uh,
0: my my God, if there if, if it involves a raccoon, all right, I'm here for it.
1: <laughs> okay. So um I, I don't sleep much. I like to work sixteen to twenty hours a day. Uh my early childhood was on a dairy farm, right? So you get up early, you go to bed late. And that's just in my nature and my pattern. If I get more than six hours of sleep, I don't really feel good. So it's 2 a.m., Queens Boulevard, and I come outside to the corner out of my hotel. have a cigarette. And one of the few times of night that it's actually dead, you know, no cars moving, no people walking. I'm on the corner. This raccoon comes trotting down the center of the road, right? And he gives me a double take. Like, I'm the one that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> i was a surprise to the raccoon. i was actually very surprised to see how much wildlife is down there
0: yeah well, well queens is is you know the most diverse place on earth so there's going to be a big population of you have you know everything you have the irish you have puerto ricans mexicans raccoons you know stray every, cats but brian seltzer uh from from long island is uh his thing um you know, something I want to talk about, you know, with, with New York and um, just thinking about, it, you know, you as, you know, uh, being, you know, disabled and also an advocate, uh, you know, for, you know, decades I would take, I would take the subway and it wasn't until I had kids and my wife and I took a trip into the city with our kids in and in this big stroller that we realized how hard it is to get around the subway system if you're in a wheelchair like you would think you know new york this you know progressive city you know uh human rights you know all about it and meanwhile it's it's like it's it could be it's very well like in some places impossible if you're in a wheelchair to fucking get on the subway i
1: sometimes it's impossible to go down the sidewalk unless you have a wheelchair like mine that's no longer manufactured and you're not allowed to have
0: <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you have? What do you have, a V8 in your... Uh, in
1: your uh, well, it was originally called an, an Omega track. Um, that That's another interesting story. We need like 20 more minutes to talk about it. Um, it's no longer made. It's no longer approved to the systems. I fought two years to get approval. As soon as I got approval, the line was no longer made because they weren't selling it because it couldn't get approved. Hmm. Um, so... You know, back to the city. I told you I spent like three weeks there. Do you know how many power wheelchairs I saw out and about when, when I was on the sidewalks petitioning the whole time? Two. Fifteen percent of the population is disabled. Significant number of those use wheelchairs. Yeah. yeah. And I only saw two, and I know why. Um, my chair will push start an F-150 hundred and will climb a six-inch curb. Um You probably saw the video I posted yesterday on my Twitter uh, where I I climbed the mountainous hill behind my house. And most of these wheelchairs today have become throwaway products. They're cheap. They're chintzy. They're over-advertised. It's like a Burger King commercial. You know, you you see that commercial, and it's a big, juicy, beautiful patty. The vegetables look healthy. Every sesame seed is perfectly placed, and it just looks delicious. And then you go through the drive-thru, and what do you get when you come out the other side? A flat, greasy, flavorless. Mm. Batty right um, i once saw uh, a wheelchair advertisement i believe it was one of the quantum line um that had this rugged looking guy with this huge chin over his shoulder attached to a semi like he was telling it and that's 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 complete bs right that's just complete bs um but my wheelchair actually has one and a half horsepower it can push starting f one hundred and fifty. It can climb a six inch curb. It doesn't get stuck very easily. It true tracks if you drive at an angle up a hill, um, so it doesn't try to straighten out with the hill, which is very important.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so what? Yeah. So what's up with you know why why don't we see more you know uh, like. Vehicles like yours, you know, why don't we see more wheelchairs like yours, like, like some, like, what? why don't we see like the rug, like a, an actual rugged, you know, with some chains on the, on the tires, some snow tires. And-
1: well, hopefully you will if the Mobility Independence Foundation uh, has its way where we're making progress. We've already upgraded the battery system. Um, we've got a project for an open source design for the human interface device. You might call it a joystick and control. Um, we have uh, another engineer working on a open source motor controller, which is like the other half of the electronic system that it has to communicate with to make everything work. Um, Hopefully, we will bring an option to the world where it can be built and provided and maintained benevolently without systems. And here's the thing. Um, Somebody once told me that after the ACA, we went from... Over 250 equipment providers in this country down to less than 50. Well, wow. libertarian, what happens when you reduce your options?
0: Sure, yeah, less competition, and, yeah, monopolies, yeah.
1: Yep. Um, so there's a lot of lobbying that goes on. Um, a lot of people fail to realize, and this is years ago, metrics, but um, <laughs> the medical equipment industry had a bigger, stronger hold on our government through lobbying than big pharma. Hmm. So there's a lot of power there, and they are. I'm a free market kind of guy, and I believe in capitalism. Before anybody, you know, shouts at me for what I'm about to say, how dare you be anti-capitalist?
0: Yeah, let's go, commie! Come on, say right, what you're going to say. Right,
1: right, right. right. I, I want. I'm so communist that I want your your auto mechanics and your engineering students in your high school tech classes to come together and build a wheelchair for somebody who wants to have a better life. (laughs) That's how communist I am. Um, So, you know, intellectual property is a big problem. Most libertarians should be against the majority of it, particularly when it's for human benefit medications, right? The EpiPen thing. We're seeing that in the medical equipment field. I have seen power wheelchairs with faux suspension, fake suspension springs mounted on the outside that don't actually actuate
0: just for show yeah just
1: think about that right yeah um and most wheelchairs don't have a great suspension this one this one has springs like a four-wheeler and it has airbags air ride adjustable (laughs) um they're not very costly they come from other markets Um, In fact, most of the parts on this chair, you can get off the shelf in some form or another that'll work. Um, But if you got it through Medicaid or your insurance company, you had to use a provider, you might have to see a doctor or a therapist to justify the wheelchair. I went through some 20-plus appointments to justify the last time I applied for a wheelchair and was given a range of wheelchairs that, well, if I used them, I'd end up injured and sent to the and. When you have a severe disability, going to the bed is a bad thing. That's mm. where you die. Mm. Um, so instead of taking that option, I took my meager limited income and I shopped eBay for parts. And I was keeping that chair kind of limping along and going. And uh, I was about to buy a rear end assembly, right? Just the uh, part of the frame that the rear wheels attached to. But it was like 80 bucks, which is cheap because it's. Heat tempered steel powder coated, pretty fancy stuff. Um and have you ever used apps where they show you one thing and they show you just a sliver of the next because they want you to swipe and look at it and trying to make it buy more. Oh sure. Yeah, well at that time the eBay app did that. I haven't shopped in eBay since. Um and there was what appeared to be an entire Omega track wheelchair. The the wheelchair I needed, the one I'd had since I was fifteen. This would have been in 2019, um, and it was listed for like four and a half thousand dollars plus shipping from Austin, Texas. Um, and I made a joke. I made a joke. I know you. I know you got a comedic background, so you appreciate this. I took a screenshot of it. And you know, I'm a poor person. I don't expect to know people who have money. I don't expect other people to buy things for me or do anything. But I, I posted the screenshot of the chair, and I said, "If anybody has four and a half thousand dollars plus shipping, this is what I want for my birthday." Because it was like mid or late May, and my birthday is at the end of June. I'm turning forty. Yeah, I was gonna. I was day. gonna
0: ask you. Yeah, when when in June? So.
1: Yep, June twenty fourth. I'm a, I'm hopefully going to be in Chicago for my birthday. Um, so. The next morning, my aide, my disabilities aide at the time, someone who comes in and helps me cook or clean the floors, which at that time, because I'd been in a defunct wheelchair for five years, my health was much more degraded than it is now. Mm. Right? An appropriate wheelchair, and my health bounced back. Right? You probably heard, you know, use it or lose it. Right. That's uh, true when you're in a wheelchair too. You still have to do things, believe it or not. Uh, being able to get to the coffee table to get your prescriptions and your remote control for the TV, see so a you have your cable, that's not a happy life, and that's not conducive to good health. And I see equipment like a, an appropriate wheelchair as a um, preventative health measure.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So <clears throat> I made that joke. And my aide at the time, um, Bradley Pierce, who helped petition for this race, by the way, this year? Um, you know, he comes in, and of course, for friends on Facebook, and he had seen it, and he's trying to convince me to crowdfund this wheelchair. And, and I had been crowdfunding for other people already for years. And at one point in 2011, a van was crowdfunded for me, an accessible van, to get back and forth to the doctor. Um, They had he had to try for days. And it's interesting because within literally the same 60 seconds of him starting that conversation, another friend of mine up the road sent me a message on my phone, also trying to convince me to crowdfund it. And within a few days, it worked. They convinced me. And here's the thing, Lou, you want to talk about the ineptitude of government? Let's talk about it. In New York at the time, it could take two years to get a wheelchair two years if you needed a um adapted or specialized or custom wheelchair yes um which i i do for obvious reasons um the chair which was barely used it had like something like 16 hours of use on it there's a there's an hour's counter
0: so instead of an odometer that yes was the hours there
1: um it was crowdfunded, shipped, delivered, and custom modified for my use in two months.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah.
1: That's that's that was a better result than the system ever gave me for anything. Mm. Uh, that that wheelchair is sitting behind me. Uh, I'm currently sitting in another old Omega track. Um, which also came up... I, I, I lied, I guess. I, I just realized. Um, I bought this one on eBay. Um, I, I, I slapped $5,400 on a credit card in a heartbeat when I saw it. Uh, it's got the air ride. It's got lights. It's got the, an air horn.
0: Holy shit. You just, that that, that horn that. just went off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got... Well, here's another feature that people don't realize is actually very important. Um, I get... Accused of having a lazy boy on wheels, right? Looks so comfortable, Tom. It reclines. Wow. It tilts. You know, it's it's just about every feature you would want in a lazy boy chair, right? Um, what's the purpose of that? A lot of people don't understand. Um, you probably know what a bed sore is.
0: Sure. Oh yeah, you got to keep you got to keep moving. Yeah.
1: Right. So the purpose of that is to take weight off of where you're sitting. Uh, Believe it or not, if you've been sitting down for 40 years straight, that's an issue. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so anybody who can't be ambulatory needs the ability to tilt and recline or otherwise get weight off. I do this twice a day for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, And of course when I sleep, but uh, it makes it easier to move around. It makes it easier to get in and out of the chair. And (laughs) This is another thing that happened, which is interesting. Um, there's, There was a man by the name of William Peace, P-E-A-C-E. He had a blog on the Internet. And his handle was Bad Cripple. Um, he was a disability advocate, and he died of boots, uh, yeah, boots, bed sores, um, advocating against the decline of wound care, which is bed sores. Um, after the ACA.
0: Jeez.
1: Um, interesting fact about the ACA. You probably know this, but most people don't. Uh, 85% of that was written by Republicans in the 80s.
0: And this is the Affordable Care Act. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. The one that that, that that covers you despite your pre-existing condition, right? Mm-hmm. You know what it covered me for? Wheelchairs that would lead to my death, my long, slow, horrible death. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um
0: yeah, t- Tom. I was gonna say, you know what you need on both your your wheelchairs. Uh, you need to uh, in, in, put an AR fifteen on them. So on okay, both. So
1: I, I don't actually need to put it on the wheelchair. I had one um, in twenty twenty. I, I loved the thing. We got it down to six pounds. It was very accessible. Nice. Um. So I, I now advocate. I don't allow myself to go over two people at a time. I have, I tend to keep two people that I'm helping at a time because it, if you, if you stack too many cases on yourself, it's stressful.
0: Oh yeah. Um,
1: now, social workers have a higher rate of psychosis, suicide, a uh, severely high rate of rollover in the job field uh, because it's so hard. And social workers are near and dear to my heart. They deal with, a lot of people don't understand this, and particularly in the disability realm, a social worker's job is to come out, get to know you, know your struggles, know your problems, understand your situation, file paperwork for this state. And more often than not, they have to come back and they have to tell this individual that they know, that they've been threatened, whose struggles they understand, that they can't help them, that they're not allowed to help them. Mm. Um, one social worker that I know Um, had a gentleman who was in hospice care at home. He was in his late 80s, and his hospital bed broke, and that was the only place he could sleep. Um, And he got denied over and over again. And so she did actually a very libertarian thing. She found four brand new hospital beds that he could choose from, donated for free. And her job told her, you're not allowed to do that.
0: You're not allowed to be a human being. Basically.
1: Apparently, when she signed the contract for her job, she signed something that stated that she's not allowed to do anything that competes with Medicaid or Medicare. Mm. Think about that. Not allowed to compete. Right. Not allowed to help. Yeah. So th- this poor guy was sleeping on the floor, you know, in a bad situation in a lot of pain because she's not allowed to compete with government sanctioned systems.
0: And, and uh Thomas um, uh, uh, we're going to wrap things up in a little bit. And I just want to, uh, why don't you maybe just talk a little bit about the stuff that you're trying to do, you know, not only as a, as an advocate, but also uh, you know, uh, running for office as, as well. Uh, maybe you can just uh, tell us uh, a little bit about that before we go.
1: Well, the number one reason that I run for office is to show people how easy it is. Huh. <laughs> well, think about it. I am disabled on welfare in the boondocks and I found a way to run for state Senate, in which I set a record for the Libertarian Party in New York and, um, I, uh, I made the ticket for U.S. Senate in 22, and I'm running for town supervisor this year. Um, does that mean that everyone should run for office? No. But it does mean that I get to go places. I get to do things. I build support. I, I, I network. And that's what I'm trying to teach people. Um, if you have a disability – You can network. You can ask for help. Often enough, the number one thing to get people to wrap their heads around in order to help them in a disability situation is just convincing them that it's okay to ask for help. Mm. Um, So I can tell you that there's at least a dozen candidates in New York alone, not necessarily disabled. I don't think any of them are, uh, who ran for office just because they saw me doing it. Just because, look, that guy's doing it. I've got no excuse to not go after my passions with this. I've got no excuse to not go after helping my community. Right? Uh, When you see the guy who's got the odds against him, I guess. I don't really think that way. um, Doing something, you make that comparison to yourself in your own situation. Right? So if I inspired people to get politically active, to pay attention to the politics, pay attention to their local politics. Uh, that's great. Um, there are other benefits to running for state senator U.S. Senate. Um, the volunteers, right? Um, most political volunteers start out as young people, right? The, they need some kind of guidance. They need some kind of uh, initiative. They need something to do that makes them feel productive. And, you know, something we lack in our country today, a lot is mentorship. And mm. so a lot of my campaigns were about mentoring young people to understand the world better. And I, I'm very proud of a lot of those young people and what they've done and what they've gone on to do. Um, one of the things I railed against as a state senate candidate was the fact that uh, the office for those with disabilities in New York um, had been rearranged into nothing more than a piece of paper. Right, It was on the books, but they didn't do anything. Yeah, you could thank the Cuomos for that, both of them. Um,
0: One of them you'd have to thank through a seance, I believe. So,
1: Yeah, well, I mean, give it time. Um, yeah. So now they have actually reopened that office. I don't necessarily like all of the protocols and the way it functions, but there's at least some place to call now when you're getting abused in the systems. Um, I, I've dealt with this. Across the country, from uh, Chicago to Missouri to Florida and Texas, Um, most states have some kind of office where if your disabilities aid or someone that works at the institution you're housed in is abusing you, you can call and they actually do something about it. Mm. Uh, There was a gentleman in um, Chicago area, very disabled, definitely on the poor side of Chicago, black. And his um, his, uh, his aide was telling him that if he didn't do what the aide said and take all of the abuse from the aide, that aide could have his welfare services removed. That's scary, Lou. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's
1: scary to someone in that situation. And it's also very untrue. I made one phone call. One. And his problem was solved. In New York, there isn't a place to call for that. Or at least there wasn't. Now there is. Mm. So, messaging, pushing. Um, I did something that libertarians don't really do enough. Uh, no discredit to those of you out there who do do this when you run for office. But you have to actually contact, talk to, have discussions with and sit down with seated representatives, even from political parties you can't stand because you get to have a conversation. You get to have an effect. And that's what it did.
0: Well, also, it's a you need to know how things run if you want to actually affect, you know, some change uh, within uh, within the system. I, I got to tell you, Thomas, I. uh Um, you, uh, you may have, have me, uh, rolling cigarettes and we'll see.
1: Make sure it's organic.
0: I gotta, I gotta make sure it's the organic, but, um, um, I gotta, I, I have to get going, but, um, I I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to come on and, and, and tell your story. And, uh, once again, is there, um, uh, you know, where can people check out your stuff? The, uh, it does the MIF, does that have a, uh, um, you know, website and all that?
1: themyth.org and and we chose that that name for the website deliberately the myth right we're pretty mythed about the way things are working um
0: well i was going to say i was going to say you're going to have a bunch of people who misspell milf ah, and, and end up finding your uh, your site so
1: like only the people who already go to that website are going to go there you know um <laughs> so it's themyth.org uh you can learn about what we're doing uh, we're new um, we have reached close to 150,000 in grants in our first six months, and we're eight months old. Um, and you know, we're moving along. It, it seems like there is no end of people with expertise who care about this project, including those who work in the industry. Um, I had a conversation with a guy who works for a provider. His job is to help you spec and obtain the equipment you need, and keep them repaired. And I was talking about the issues and he goes, let me guess, you're going to talk about, and he rattled them off the company names, most of which I've sued in the past. Um, sure. and, and, you know, so the people that work in these systems, they know, they get it. Mm-hmm. The, the social workers, the, the people who work with the equipment, doctors, therapists, they all get it. They know how bad it is. They're just trying to do whatever good they can, whatever way they can. And, I think we have real opportunity with going forward with open source designs that make them more durable. Um, They're actually going to be more green. A cast iron pan is very green. Do you know why? Uh, It lasts forever. I'm using cast iron pans that my great grandparents inherited. Um, These wheelchairs are very easily repairable. Um, We believe that um, high school tech students can build one. We believe that college students can build one. We believe that we, mutual aid organizations that specialize in repairs can build one. We believe that your auto mechanic, your diesel mechanic can build one.
0: Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you who can't build one. This guy. I would disagree. All right. that That's the challenge. We, we, we might have to do a, uh, we might have to do a sequel uh, and all that, but uh Uh, Thomas, thank you. uh, Thank you so much. Um, Everyone out there, uh, please check out themiff.org and follow Thomas Quiter. uh, uh, It's spelled Q-U-I-T-E-R at Twitter. And uh, we're going to end now. Thomas, thank you very much.